Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is Friday, December 26th, 2014. Obviously, the last Friday night program of this year. Tomorrow night, I'm going to do um, an open lines program. I'm going to take phone calls. I don't want to hear from Jews and trolls. Of course, the same tired old hags will probably call in attempting to annoy me, but that's okay. We know who they are. They prove who they are every time they do so. Psychotic old Jew trolls, but that's okay. I will also be discussing um, true Christian humility tomorrow night. Because even though it's a topic I've discussed at length before, some people just don't get the fact that having humility is not kissing their asses. They think that people who kiss their asses are humble people while they exalt themselves. People that are truly humble, people that have true Christian humility, are people that subject themselves to the Word of God, that agree with the Word of God that put God first ahead of themselves, not people who compromise and kiss the asses of men. That's not humility. That's stupidity, according to Scripture. And we will see that tomorrow night. For now, we will, we will present the epistles of Paul, 1 Corinthians, part 13. Communion, ritual versus reality. Continuing our discussion of this first epistle to the Corinthians, we must keep in mind that ever since the beginning of chapter 7 of the epistle, Paul of Tarsus has been responding to specific questions which the assembly in Corinth had previously composed to him. So in chapter 7, he discusses with them the risks of marriage in a time of persecution. And then in chapter 8, the daily coexistence of Christians in a pagan world. Paul then addressed matters concerning the conduct of his own ministry in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, he turned back to the discussion of idolatry. In each of these discussions, we gain important insights into Paul's own Christian worldview, insights which are instrumental in understanding his epistles as a whole. In things such as how he defined marriage, divorce, and fornication, and how he esteemed Christian license under the New Covenant, giving the procurement of food from pagan sources as an example of the bounds and resolution of Christian disagreements. Then Paul offered the conduct of his own ministry as an example for others. That continence and subjection of the fleshly will are of the utmost importance because men must subject themselves to Christ, and especially those men who are proclaiming Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul 
more or less continued the discussion from chapter 8 concerning idolatry, the tables of demons and the bounds of Christian communion. Paul attested that idolatry was the worship of demons. And we illustrated that his words in Colossians chapter 2 concerning the worship of angels were indeed related to this statement, while also citing the corroborating Enoch literature and the writings of the contemporary Qumran sect in order to show that the sins of the so-called fallen angels were related to these demons, which are also as they are called in the Enoch literature, the spirits of bastards. In Psalm 96, in verse 5, we may read from the King James Version that, as it says, all the gods of the nations are idols. However, in the Septuagint Version of the same psalm, we find that all the gods of the nations are devils or demons. And therefore, we find agreement in Psalm 96 with the words of Paul of Tarsus in the version of the Old Testament closer to the one which he himself had used. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul will continue along those lines and discuss Christian communion as well as Christian deportment within the assembly of Christ. In chapter 10, however, among other things, there were two important concepts expressed by Paul which are a necessary prerequisite in order to have a complete understanding of this coming chapter. The first of those are that the Corinthians were indeed among those nations who had descended from the children of Israel, which were in the Exodus. And the second is that Paul clearly reckoned the children of Israel according to the flesh as being the tribes of the pagan nations of Europe. Paul reckoned Israel as 12 tribes, as it is recorded, in Acts chapter 26. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul attested that the nations to whom he brought the gospel were indeed the offspring of Jacob according to the promise to Abraham. That those nations had actually descended from Abraham. Therefore, the body of Christ consists of those children of Israel according to the flesh. Since the new covenant was made with those same Israelites, as Paul explained in several of his writings elsewhere, citing the Old Testament prophets. As we had seen, in part concerning the Corinthians, ancient history certainly proves that Paul was correct. Modern-day churches have developed the mistaken idea that Israel is spiritual, or in other words, that some general community of believers has somehow replaced the Israel of God. 
Yet Paul of Tarsus encountered Israel in his own day and at least 25 years after the crucifixion and resurrection as 12 tribes, as he attested in Acts chapter 26, and as his kinsmen according to the flesh, as he attested in Romans chapter 9. These are the nations which have sprung from the seed of Abraham, which he explains are indeed the recipients of the promises in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. Only identity Christians have an understanding of the truth of these matters. And believing Paul's words in conjunction with the many oracles of Yahweh found in the prophets concerning the ancient children of Israel. It is identity Christians who are indeed the traditional Christians while the universalist dispensationalists and the replacement theologians, they are the innovators and the frauds. Here, in the later part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it shall be further elucidated that Christian Israel should have discriminated from the beginning against non-Israelites who are forever outside of the covenants and that Christian Israel is faulted for not having discriminated here by Paul. in this epistle. Because the first verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 belongs with the end of the chapter which precedes it, here we shall commence with verse 2. And Paul says, changing the topic from verse 1 in chapter 10, Now I commend you because you have remembered me entirely, and just as I had transmitted to you those transmissions you have retained. Some codices in the majority text add the word brethren at the end of the first clause of this verse. The phrase remembered me entirely is literally remembered all things of me. And the obvious inference is that they remembered all that he had told them, as the phrase may have been loosely translated. Paul is commending the Corinthians for having adhered to certain things which he had taught them during his year and a half in Corinth, several years prior to the writing of this epistle. It is evident that in his subsequent statements, he offers elaborations upon and refinements of those earlier teachings, which is the purpose for his discourse here. And he says, but I wish for you to acknowledge, acknowledge the natural order of God's creation, but I wish for you to acknowledge that of every man, the head is the anointed, but the head of the woman is the man, and the head of the anointed, Yahweh. 
that the word for anointed here is a reference to the body of Christ, which is Christian Israel collectively, is our interpretation in the Christogenian New Testament. It's only an interpretation. It may be interpreted as Christ. However, we do this because Christ is indeed one and the same with Yahweh God, who is the ultimate head of the assembly. This interpretation preserves in our estimation. It preserves the context of this epistle. As Paul explains further on in chapter 12, where he also explicitly refers to the Ecclesia as the body of Christ and individual members as being members of that body. And I'll read from verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and members in particular, quoting from the King James Version, if members of the body of Christ are to have greater concern for the other members of the body than they do for themselves, then it is evident here that the man should be subservient to the body of Christ by making himself a servant of that body. Doing this, a man lives his life as Christ did by giving his life for the body as he himself as Christ himself had done and as he instructed his followers to do in turn. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come, will come after me, let him deny himself putting the people of Israel first. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now concerning Paul's presentation of the proper relationship between man and wife, it is evident right from the beginning of Scripture in the way in which the Scripture is presented that there is a lesson which Paul has followed in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 concerning the proper relationship between a man and his wife. The man was created first, and then the woman was created in order to be a helpmate for the man. Accordingly, Paul asserts in verse 9 of this chapter that woman was created for the sake of man as Genesis 2 fully infers. However, we read in Genesis chapter 2 that the man was also to cleave unto his wife. This is the natural order of the creation of God. And therefore, while the woman is subordinate to the man, the man has a responsibility to the woman. However, in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, we find the woman alone, where she was beguiled by the serpent. Then, in her sinful state, the man was led by the woman into that same sin. 
this was the fault of the man as much or even more so than it was of the woman because the man was told to cleave to his wife and evidently he failed to do so. As Paul said in his second epistle to the Corinthians, the woman was deceived in the transgression, but the man was not. And ostensibly, the sin of the man was therefore committed willfully. As punishment for their transgression, the woman was told that thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee, which actually only commanded the woman to return to her rightful place in the creation. Then the man was punished in turn, and the pronouncement of his punishment begins with the words, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. So the man was punished because he allowed the woman to lead him into sin. It was not that Adam should not have ever taken any advice from his wife, but that Adam should not have followed the wife contrary to the word of God. There's a difference there. Therefore, man should obey God first, and his relationship with his wife is secondary. There are feminists, even many feminists amongst identity Christians, which is sad, who believe that a woman can rightfully fulfill the role of a man. However, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, we read that the woman shall not wear that which pertains unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are an abomination unto Yahweh thy God. In Isaiah chapter 3, we see the children of Israel depicted in a sinful state. From verse 12, As for my people, children, their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. This compares once again to the state of society today where women and children have been granted a legal status which makes them preeminent above men. This is a reproach to sinful men, and it is their chastisement that Yahweh God allows it. When women rule over men, it is a disgrace to the men. When in the scripture we see great women rise up and fulfill great roles and do great things, it's a disgrace to the men because they were not doing their jobs. Men can only keep their rightful place in God's creation when they put when they put God first. When the men of Israel put God first, women will naturally fall in line behind them. Verse 4. 1 Corinthians 11. Every man praying or interpreting prophecy 
building the head, I'm sorry, holding the head down disgraces his head. I can't read without my glasses, I'm sorry. The Greek verb, prophetuo, prophetuo, is only used by Paul in 1 Corinthians, in chapters 11, 13, and 14. To the Greeks, the word meant to be an interpreter of the gods. Prophetuo, of course, is the Greek verbal form of the word prophetes, from which we get prophet. To mean, to be, it means to be an interpreter of the gods. And according to Liddell and Scott, in the New Testament, it means to expound scripture, to speak and preach under the influence of the Holy Spirit. After the manner in which the Greeks used the word, from a Christian perspective, we would agree that in the New Testament, it means to be an interpreter of the word of God. Therefore, everywhere in this epistle, the verb is understood to mean to interpret prophecy, and that is how it is usually translated in the Christian New Testament. However, there are clearly other uses of these words, prophetes, the noun, prophetuo, the verb, which have not which are not adequately expressed by adhering to this one aspect of its meaning. The first, is, the first use is, of course, found in the Old Testament of those men who recorded the visions and messages given to them by Yahweh, by God, and they recorded them even if they could not interpret them or didn't really know what they meant. Additionally, the words may also describe a person. This is the third definition of the word. The words may also describe a person who has the unnatural ability to reveal hidden secrets. And that is the sense in which it is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 at verse 24. And also, where the Samaritan woman at the well, described in John chapter 4, exclaimed to Christ that, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet, when he revealed to her details of her life that he did not know otherwise. He had to know them supernaturally. They had to be revealed to him by the Spirit, right? We shall discuss this further when in this presentation of our commentary, we arrive at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. For now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. But every woman praying or interpreting prophecy with the head uncovered disgraces her head, for it is one and the same with having been shaven. Indeed, if a woman is uncovered, then she must be shorn or shaven. But if it is a disgrace to a woman to be shorn or to be shaven, 
she must be covered. These verses cannot be understood outside of their original historic context. In verse 15 of this chapter, Paul explains that it is the woman's long hair, which is the covering of which he speaks. In that, we see that the Roman Catholic insistence that a woman wear a headscarf or other man-made covering is an innovation which reflects their own misunderstanding of Paul's words here. Among the women of Paul's time, it had become fashionable for them to make elaborate decorations in braids, thereby uncovering their heads by having their hair arranged in these braids which sat high above their heads. A collection of early photographs of early Roman sculpture illustrating this custom is available at Christogenia under the title Early Roman Women, where the comment is made that looking at Roman hairstyles, the comments by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and by Peter at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, can indeed be better understood. Paul said in his first epistle to Timothy in 2.9, that likewise women in moderate attire are to adorn themselves with modesty and discretion, not in wreaths and in gold or pearls or in very expensive garments, where the word translated as wreaths may have been better translated as braids, since the word bears either meaning. The King James Version has broided hair instead of wreaths, and that is certainly appropriate. Wreaths were also used to um, decorate women's hair, or hair woven into braids resembles wreaths. Paul is talking about that custom of women braiding their hair atop of their heads and thereby uncovering their heads. The Apostle Peter fully agrees with Paul, where in his first epistle in chapter 3 he wrote, and I'll quote from verse 1, Likewise, the wives being subject to their own husbands, so Peter agrees with Paul in that respect, in order that if some men disobey the word through the conduct, meaning some husbands, through the conduct of the wives, they shall have advantage without the word, observing in fear your pure conduct, of which the dress must not be outward with braids of hair and applications of gold or putting on of garments, but the hidden man of the heart with the incorruptibility of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious before Yahweh. For thusly, at one time also, the holy women who have hope in 
Yahweh had dressed themselves, being subject to their own husbands. As Sarah had obeyed Abraham, calling him master, whose children you have been born to do good and not fearing any terror. And of course, Peter was also talking to women who were descendants of the Israelites and the literal children of Sarah. He didn't tell him that they would be Sarah's children. He said they were born as Sarah's children. Therefore, while a man, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, therefore, while a man ought not to have the head covered, being of the likeness and splendor of Yahweh, then a woman is the splendor of a man. Yahweh, having made the Adamic race both male and female, the woman is certainly the more beautiful of the two, as she is evidently supposed to be. Paul's insistence that men should not cover their heads while praying is also enigmatic, unless one understands the Roman tradition of his time. While Corinth was a Greek city, since its restoration by Julius Caesar, it was a cosmopolitan and Romanized city as well. Pagan Roman priests, who were actually spread in every major city throughout the empire, had conducted religious observances with their heads covered. And pagan Roman men, when praying, would both lower and cover their heads with a cloak or with a part of their toga. This custom is well known to have prevailed in Paul's time. It is explained by Dionysius of Halicarnassus, who died about 7 AD in his Roman Antiquities. It is also explained in a rather different way, but we could see that the custom certainly existed, by Plutarch in his Moralia. Plutarch died about 120 AD. So this custom of covering the head by Romans when they prayed is extant from at least the time of Dionysius, before 7 AD, until the time of Plutarch, up to 120 A.D. Livy, Titus Livius. Livy, the famous Roman historian, died a few years after Dionysius, around 17 A.D., and he also mentioned prayers being made by men with their heads covered in his History of Rome, Book 1, Chapter 32, Paragraph 6. Of course, Paul is addressing former pagans. He's not addressing Judeans in Corinth. He's addressing former pagans, and that can clearly be told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. So he's not, and many confuse this, Paul is not referring to Judean customs here. He's referring to pagan customs and telling the Corinthians not to do those things. Verse 8, For man is not from woman, 
but woman from man. Also, man has not been created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. Paul's explanation comes directly from Genesis chapter 2. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helpmate for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. The primary reason for the creation of woman, given in Scripture, to be a helpmate for the man. Verse 10. For this reason, a woman ought to have a sign of control upon the head for the sake of the messengers or angels. And there's a lot to talk about in this short verse. The Greek word, exousia, Strong's number 1849, has appeared frequently in this epistle. It is generally power or authority to do something or to have license in a thing which gives one the authority to do it. The King James Version has this verse that a woman ought to have power on her head. Here in the Christogenian New Testament, it is interpreted as a sign of control, which is explained by Joseph Thayer in his Greek-English lexicon, definition for exousia, to more fully mean a sign of the husband's authority over his wife, which we shall see is not necessarily correct. Of course, reading Thayer's definition, the traditional caricature of the caveman pulling his wife by the hair may come to mind. However, that is certainly not what Paul intends here. Rather, in our opinion, it seems that the sign of control in long hair on a woman is an expression of modesty on the part of the woman, where the inferences made by both Paul and Peter are that women who adorn themselves with braids and jewels, who tie up their hair in these elaborate hairstyles that women of the time were using, those women are immodest. Paul's reference to the messengers, or angels here, may seem to be obscure, but it should not be obscure at all. He had already spoken in chapter 10 of the demons who were the authors of idolatry. 
The Epistle of Jude is probably the plainest New Testament resource, which explains that the angels, which kept not their first estate, were dwelling among Christians and were spots in their feasts of charity, feeding themselves without fear at this time. And they are today. Jude also describes them as men who crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the progeny of those very devils who were the authors of idolatry, and they dwell among us even today, bound in chains of darkness as the non-Adamic races who have been infiltrating Adamic society in order to corrupt it in every age. Peter described these same people, if you want to call them people, in chapter 2 of his second epistle, where he said, from verse 12, But these, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that counted pleasure to riot in the daytime. Sounds like recent current events, right? Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling, he was beguiled, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. These must be the angels to whom Paul referred in this admonishment, the descendants of the fallen angels, the Kenites and Rephaim and other races of Genesis chapter 15, who were later intermingled with and identified as Canaanites, Edomites, and others of the bastard races. As it has been illustrated here, women wearing their hair naturally and without braids was a sign of modesty. Therefore, the sign of control was not for their husbands to pull them around by the hair. But it was for the woman herself, the sign of control was a display of the woman's modesty and an indication to the rest of the society that she was a modest and continent woman, and therefore she was not issuing an invitation to be tempted like a woman does when she pimps herself up. The sign of control is therefore a sign of self-control. That's what Paul's talking about here in long hair, that the indication of modesty 
was a sign of self-control. A woman dressing immodestly and in baubles and braids, as Peter basically describes it in his first epistle, is advertising an inclination to incontinence and issuing an invitation that she is open to temptation. And the fallen angels, those spots in our feasts of charity who have eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, would make those women victims. And they do every day in the world around us now. However, neither is woman separate from man nor man separate from woman by authority. And that word, I know the King James says, in the Lord. That word curios is often used with the definite article as a substantive. A substantive is a word or group of words which are not nouns by themselves, but which function as a noun. When curios is used in this manner, it is usually translated as the Lord in most Bible versions. In this verse, it is not accompanied with the Greek article. It's accompanied with the preposition, and, meaning and. But therefore, it is not necessarily a substantive. The word curios is basically an adjective. And it means a person's having power or authority over, to be lord of, to be master of. Therefore, as it appears here in the dative case, and with a preposition which means in, at, or within, among other things, here it is with authority. That is the natural, literal reading of the Greek. Men and women do not have authority when they are husband and wife. They do not have authority in Scripture to be separate from one another because the man is told to cleave to his wife. That is what Paul is referring to here. Paul had written earlier in this very epistle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but because of fornication, because of the temptation of fornication, each man must have his own wife, and each woman must have her own husband. The husband must render the obligation due to the wife. And in like manner, the wife also to the husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband. And in like manner also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife. Do not withdraw from one another unless in agreement for a time. You have no license to leave your wife against her will. Do not withdraw from one another unless in agreement for a time, in order that you devote time to prayer 
and come together into one place again. That the adversary, those spots in your Feast of Charity, the angels or messengers, which Paul mentions here, that the adversary would not tempt you due to your incontinence. That which the Word of God says in Genesis, Christ also said, as it is recorded in the Gospels of both Matthew and Mark, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. If the husband is to cleave to his wife, then here in 1 Corinthians, it is evident that Paul interpreted that to mean that the two should not at all be separated except for those reasons which he himself had already given. Verse 12. Therefore, just as the woman is from the man, in that manner also the man is through the woman, but all things are from Yahweh. Paul refers to the creation of Eve and then in turn to the act of childbearing, as the child is perceived as being made from the body of the mother. Verse 13, you decide within yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to Yahweh uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a dishonor to him? The men of the Greco-Roman world typically had short hair. Perhaps not as short as modern military haircut, but not longer than many men wear their hair today. And usually not below what we may call the collar. That's evident in much of the Greco-Roman sculpture from the first century. There is a misconception that in antiquity, the Israelites grew their hair long. That misconception is usually taken from poor interpretations of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 27, which tells men not to round the corners of their beards or their foreheads, the hair of their foreheads and things like that. However, that's a misconception that that um, somehow commands men to grow their hair long. The proof of that is in Ezekiel chapter 44. In Ezekiel chapter 44, we see a vision of the priests of the temple and in verse 20, it says, Neither shall they shave their heads, nor suffer their locks to grow long. They shall only pull their heads. To pull their heads means to trim the hair, to get a haircut. And it is quite clear here that the hair of the priest was not permitted to grow long. Ezekiel was writing over 600 years before Paul of Tarsus. In the earliest Greek art, such as the Attic black letter vases, 
women were pictured with longer hair, although it was often tied up, especially when they were pictured working. Men were usually pictured with relatively shorter hair, although there were sometimes exceptions where certain gods were pictured with long hair. Typically, even back to 7th century Athens and before the time of Ezekiel, men were pictured with shorter hair. But if a woman, verse 15, wears long hair, it is an honor to her because the long hair has been given to her in place of a covering. We're going to tarry here for a few moments. Some manuscripts include the first clause of this verse in Paul's question from verse 14. However, the general meaning does not change. As for the rest of the Greek of this passage, every ancient manuscript agrees on the wording, except that two ancient manuscripts, the 3rd century papyrus, P46, and the Codex Claromontanus, want the word which is translated to her in the last clause because the long hair has been given in place of the covering, still means the same thing. The omission does not change the general meaning. There are a lot of emotional responses and illogical arguments concerning the meaning and translation of this verse. The King James Version and other translations have taken the word auntie, the word auntie appears here, and they have weakened it, and they have rendered it only as for. Yet the preposition, when used with an object of the genitive case, because auntie often means against, when it's used with an object of the genitive case, as it is here, it means instead or in the place of. Paul is clearly saying that the long hair of a woman should be worn so as to cover her head because it is the natural covering which God had given to her. That hair being given in place of a covering. The use of the hair of the woman is for a covering. And Paul is certainly not stating anywhere that a woman needs any additional covering. The interpretation of this verse and Paul's remarks here, when they are all taken in context, are an excellent example of the one-verse-wonder phenomenon of Bible study which permeates the modern organized churches and has for a long, long time. 
Upon reading 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, they develop doctrines requiring women to wear scarves or shawls or kerchiefs on their heads while they are in the assembly. Yet, they do not read down to verse 15 to see what covering Paul was talking about. Furthermore, the modern churches cannot understand why Paul discussed the need for hair as a covering because they do not realize that contemporary to Paul, Roman women were uncovering their heads by using their hair as a piled decoration of elaborate braids worn on top of their heads. As we have illustrated in 1 Timothy 2.9 and in 1 Peter 3.3, both Peter and Paul discouraged the use of such braids in their teachings on women and modesty. Then, in addition to those failures on the part of the churches, when they are confronted with 1 Corinthians 11.15, they abuse historical passages which are taken out of context, describing things such as the traditional veiling of virgins among the Greeks in order to somehow prove that Paul did not teach what he said. Paul indeed taught exactly what he said here, and the churches, the modern denominations, should be ashamed for not taking into consideration the whole of the scriptures before formulating their doctrines upon one or two verses. They have all done this same thing with many other scriptural issues as well. I can remember unfortunately, the 1960s, and the compulsory Catholic Church attendance I suffered as a child. Women going to church without a hat or a kerchief would take a tissue and a hairpin out of their toolboxes, or I mean pocketbooks, and attach the tissue to their head in order to fulfill the church requirement that their head be covered. That is no different than a ritual. The reality is that some of those women were already properly covered with their own long hair, while others with short hair or with elaborate hairstyles were certainly not properly covered in spite of the kerchief or the tissue which was worn on their heads. The failure of churches through Roman Catholic history has been that they have focused on the ritual at the expense of the reality. Perhaps this is a good place to read all of the translations in part of this verse, 1 Corinthians 11.15 to see how many got it wrong. There are so many people who read the Christian New Testament and they claim that think must be wrong 
because he didn't translate that passage the way all the popular trans versions did. Or think must be wrong because none of the popular versions agree with his translation, as if the consensus of man was ever an indication of truth. For a covering, the words for a covering or as a covering. If we read 11.15, that word anti to mean for or as, which it does not mean, for a covering, allows that Paul is talking about a second covering in verses 5 and 6, which some modern so-called churches claim when they are confronted with 1 Corinthians 11.15. The words instead of a covering or in place of a covering are the actual literal translation, and they would not be able to make that claim concerning a second covering if the translations had properly translated the word anti. And when you look at the New International Version, it says, long hair is given to her as a covering. That's a lie, because anti doesn't mean as. It means instead of, or in place of. The New Living Translation, it has been given to her as a covering. The English Standard Version, for a covering. The New American Standard Bible, for a covering. The King James, for a covering. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, as a covering. They're all liars, every one of them. The International Standard Version, since hair is given as a substitute for coverings. Now, that's a little elaborate, but they got it right. The New English translation of the Bible. For her, hair is given to her for a covering. They failed. The Aramaic Bible in plain English, I'm not really an expositor of the Aramaic manuscripts. They are later than many of the Greek manuscripts, which were better reflections of the original. However, the Aramaic Bible in plain English, because her hair is given to her in place of a covering, the woman's hair is in place of a covering. She doesn't need any other cover. They got it right. That's number two. God's word translation. Her hair is given to her in place of the covering. They got it right. The Jubilee Bible, 2000. For a covering, wrong answer. King James, 2000. For a covering, wrong answer. The American King James Version. For a covering, they failed Greek. The American Standard Version, for a covering, the Douay-Rheims Bible, which, evident, which obviously is translated from Greek to Latin to English, but they have for a covering. The Darby Bible translation, here's another one that got it right. For the long hair is given to her in lieu of a veil. Now, the word for covering is literally covering, but Darby interpreted it 
to veil. But that's okay. He got the, he got the preposition correct in lieu of or in place of, and that's good. He did good. The English Revised Version, for a covering, they got to revise it again. The Webster's Bible Translation, for a covering. The Weymouth Translation, for a covering. The World English Bible, for a covering. They all fail. The preposition anti does not mean for. It means against, or in place of, or instead of, in this grammatical context. Young's literal translation was number five out of 21 that got it right. Because the hair, instead of a covering, has been given to her. He got it right. Very good. He gets a star in this verse. I do this to show that five translations out of 21 got it right. It's a simple preposition, but their church doctrines, leaving wiggle room for their church doctrines, causes 16 of those 21 translations to purposely mistranslate this word anti in this verse. And that's an exhibition I felt that I had to put on. Paul concludes this part of his discussion with an assertion for those who would disagree. Now, if anyone supposes to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the assemblies of Yahweh. And this seems to be a purposely tongue-in-cheek statement there very well may have been women among those of the assembly in Corinth who justified their baubles and their hairstyles as being fashionable, contentiously defending their immodest dress. Paul is attempting to put such contention to rest. For these things, modern feminists esteem Paul of Tarsus as a woman-hater, a misogynist. Yet throughout his ministry, Paul had many excellent relationships with Christian women. On the other hand, the sodomites seek to make Paul a sodomite as well, so that they can justify their sodomy. Attacking the Bible is all about the need for approval of one's own sins. In truth, neither feminists, which are women who want to be like men, nor sodomites, which are men who like being women, belong in the assembly of Christ, and both are antithetical to the proper function of the creation of Yahweh God. Paul had commended the Corinthians, as we see here in verse 2, since to some great degree they must have adhered to the teachings which he has reinforced in the first part of this chapter and up to this point. Now, in the later part of the chapter, he will, he will discuss things in which the Corinthians were evidently failing. So he told them that for those things, he does not commend them. And before I get to verse 17, let me say that when I post this podcast, I, have, um, I will have links to appropriate 
images of the um, the Roman women of the first and, and second centuries who wore their hair in a manner which uncovered their heads, which is what Paul is criticizing here and in his epistle to Timothy, as Peter also is in his own first epistle. And I will also have links to a, um, a collection of images of some of the Attic black letter vases. And um, they will exhibit what I was saying about women with long hair and men with short hair. Let me warn people about the Attic black letter vases. That art style was an art style which depicted the sexes by using color. So you'll see black men with white women. That is not, that is not have anything to do with race. They were all Greeks and they were all white. The early Athenian creators of that type of art used color to represent sex where men were black and women were white, but it has nothing to do with race. In um, early Egypt, they had a similar scheme in some of their art. When we see the, um, the later and more sophisticated Greco-Roman art, we see men are usually depicted as being tan and women as white because whiteness was um, was a trait which was seen as beautiful and because women did not go outside without clothes on. So typically their skin was very white. Where men, and there's examples of this in the gospel itself, men worked with their clothing off and worked out in the sun all day if they had a vocation that required them to do so. And they worked naked in the fields. They worked naked fishing or, or, or boating or sailing or whatever they were doing, carpentry. They worked naked. There's an example of that in Scripture where Peter is with some of the other apostles fishing. And he sees Christ walking on the water and what does Peter do? He puts his clothes on to jump in the water. That's exactly the opposite that you would expect to see in our society. If you were in a boat on the bay and thought about jumping in the water, you might take some of your clothing off to do so. The apostles, when they were fishing, and, and fishermen in general, because Peter was raised as a fisherman, worked naked. So they would not soil their garments while they were working. They laid them aside. Christ does that same thing when he washes the feet of the apostles. So, so we have to be careful with art, and that's my purpose here in, in this digression and, and the interpretation of color in art. It's not always what it looks like at first sight. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, giving this message, I do not commend you because you gather not for the better, but for the worse. Indeed, in the first place, 
of your gathering in the assembly, I hear divisions arising among you, and to some degree I believe it. Paul had already admonished the Corinthians for having exhibited a proclivity to be followers of man rather than followers of Christ, where in chapter 1 of this epistle he said that it has been disclosed to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of the house of Chloe, that there is contention among you. Now I say this, that each of you say, so I am of Paul. But I am of Apollos, but I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Have the anointed been divided? Has Paul been crucified on your behalf? Or have you been immersed in the name of Paul? And in other words, Paul is telling these Corinthians that some of them were claiming to be followers of Paul, others followers of Apollos, others followers of Peter. Of course, being followers of men and interpreting the words of men apart from the scripture itself is certainly the primary cause for division among Christians. Since all men are fallible, all teachers of Scripture must be inspected against the Scriptures, and each and every Christian has a responsibility to do so. And each man, teacher or not, must be necessarily corrected if he is found to be in error. The apostles were not substitutes for Christ, but rather they were each in their own different way, pointing the way to Christ. Verse 19, For there must also be sects among you, in order that those approved will become evident or manifest, perhaps, among you. That Greek word translated sects, I've been criticized for that. That's crazy. The Greek word hieresis appears elsewhere in Paul, only at Galatians 5.20, and elsewhere in Scripture, only in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. The English word heresy was derived as a transliteration from this Greek word hieresis, translated as sects here in the Christian New Testament. Properly, a hieresis is a taking, a choosing, a choice, or a sect, as Liddell and Scott define it. A choosing or a choice on the Christian path indicates that there is a fork in the road. However, Scripture is consistent, and therefore such choosings or choices are not truly Christian if they cause divisions in the body of Christ. If a choosing or a choice causes division in the body of Christ, well, 
The entire scripture indicates that there's only one body of Christ, and that fork in the road causes divisions in that body. So somebody is not being Christian. The word sects here is a more literal, straightforward, and clearer choice than the church word heresies. Although there are some who foolishly criticize that literal translation, while the word sect has a negative connotation in our society, it is properly a section or a division. Using the word hieresis in reference to a Christian assembly merely indicates that there is a group within the assembly that has, in some respect, made a choice or taken a path that distinguishes it from the rest of the body. Now, somebody has to be wrong because the scripture is consistent. If we can disagree on a lot of little things and not have division. If a disagreement causes a division in the body of Christ, then somebody is following men and not Christ. Ostensibly, to those who love Christ and his word, which is the word of Yahweh God, will conform themselves to him. Those who create sects distinguish themselves apart from Christ. And Paul is warning that this is inevitable, but that in the process, the people who are indeed approved by God will be made manifest. The Apostle Peter in his second epistle said, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 20, However, of your gathering into one place, it is not to eat the supper of the Lord, or prince in the Christian New Testament, but I wanted to make a point emphatic. The Lord's Supper is not to be eaten in the Ecclesia. It is a common assertion among Judaized Christians, and especially Roman Catholics, that the purpose of going to church is for communion. Many Catholics believe in a pagan and basically cannibalistic idea that they call transubstantiation. They got fancy words for something that must be true, right? That's a good trick in theology today. Come up with these long words for heresies, for sects, and they must be true because you have long words to describe these things. Those words aren't in the Bible. If the word transubstantiation is not found in Scripture, it's bullshit. In the belief of transubstantiation, Catholics think that a wafer host and a cup of cheap wine somehow changes into the flesh and blood of Christ, which they all drink to obtain salvation. This is just another pagan ritual foisted upon the people by the professional priesthood at the expense 
of the reality of true Christian communion. The Roman Catholics had the audacity to call their Eucharist ritual the Lord's Supper. And here, in a single statement, Paul refutes the validity of their ritual by saying, of your gathering into one place, it is not to eat the supper of the Lord. Except for that word translated as however in this verse in the Christian New Testament, all Greek manuscripts agree on the text, and the literal meaning is absolutely clear. In this important instance, the Roman Catholics are clearly shown to be in direct contradiction to Paul of Tarsus. Of course, there are many other such instances, which are usually a little harder to spot or take a little more work to illustrate. Verse 21, each beforehand takes his own supper in there to eat, meaning into the, the place where the Christians assemble. And while one hungers, then another is intoxicated. Now, do you not have houses in which to eat and to drink? Or do you think contentiously of the assembly of Yahweh and disgrace those that have not? What should I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I do not commend. There are some differences in the manuscripts that are minor that don't really change the meaning, but will be mentioned in the notes to this program. Paul's words here reflect a view of the Lord's Supper, which is quite different than the perception of most so-called Christians down through the ages, mostly because of the deception of the formerly pagan professional priests who dominated the original formation of the Roman Catholic Church in the 4th century. According to Paul, the supper of the Lord should be eaten at home. It also consisted of a full meal, not some paper wafer with or without a sip of wine, and cheap wine at that. The Corinthians were wrong for bringing these meals to the Christian assembly, and Paul is scolding them for it, because there were evidently poorer members of the assembly who had to do without, while the wealthier members gouged themselves. Referring to the Supper of the Lord, Paul asks them, Now do you not have houses in which to eat and to drink? And this helps to clarify some things that Paul wrote later in this chapter. where he says in verse 26 that indeed, as often as you may eat this wheat bread and you may drink this cup, you declare the death of the prince until he should come. This reveals Paul's perspective that the supper of the Lord should be what Christians do every single time they partake of a meal in their house. Which... Paul says is where they should eat and should drink. 
the supper of the Lord is not a ritual to be conducted in a church. The reality of the scripture is that Christians should praise Christ every time they eat and drink and partake of all the blessings and sustenance which they receive from him in his commemoration. Verse 23. For I received from the prince that which I have also transmitted to you, that Prince Yahshua, in the night in which he had been handed over, talking about the Last Supper, took wheat bread, and giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Now, the majority text adds words here that none of the ancient manuscripts have. It adds, You take, you eat before the words, this is my body. It also adds, which on your behalf is being broken. Now the Codex Claromontanus has, which on your behalf is being crushed. And none of the other ancient manuscripts have that phrase. So we see some um, innovations in the later manuscripts here. This is my body, which is for you. This you do in remembrance of me. In like manner also the cup, along with the dinner, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This you do as often as you may drink in remembrance of me. Paul is repeating things which are found recorded in the gospel accounts. In Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. In verse 25 here, we see the phrase meta to mesahi, which is translated here as along with the dinner. Because that verb, daitmeo, Strong's number 1172, means in Greek to take the chief meal, to eat the chief meal of the day, to dine. And there are a host, there, there were like 17, 18 verbs in Greek, which can mean to eat. And many of them have their own particular nuances of meaning. If I have my lexicon, I have a list of them all. It's on the bookshelf in the next room. The word meta means among, in the midst of, with, in company with, among other things, with the dinner, along with the chief meal of the day. That's what Paul's saying here. When we um, examine the Last Supper of Christ and the Apostles, it was actually the Passover Supper prepared in the traditional manner. There was wine, there was bread, there was lamb. That's a requirement for a Passover dinner. There was a cup of broth on the table that sops or little pieces of food were dipped into. And we see in the Gospel of John that Judas had at one point dipped his morsel into the cup at the same time that Christ had dipped his own while he was eating. 
he who dips his hand into the cup with me. Little cultural things like that draw for us a fuller picture of the dinner. But it was a dinner. It wasn't a ritual. This is done at dinner, as Paul says here, in your house, in memory of him. Every time you eat. Paul describes Christ's having taken the bread, a common loaf of wheat bread. That's what artus is. There's different words. There's several different words in Greek, and each has a particular connotation, and they can all be translated bread, but artus is wheat bread. Cretus is barley bread. So we couldn't interpret artus as a loaf of barley or rye or any other grain. It's wheat bread. And it's a loaf of bread. It's not a stupid little wafer. Paul describes Christ having taken a common loaf of wheat bread and breaking it at a meal. In the Synoptic Gospels, it is only evident in Luke chapter 22 that Christ himself made the correlation of the broken bread to his body being broken on behalf of his people. This entire portion of the Last Supper is not recorded by John. The cup, representing the new covenant in his blood, is then taken along with the dinner. From all of the Gospels, it is clear that the dinner which is described is an entire meal and not merely a piece of bread. But Paul did interpret the bread and wine. I'm sorry, I want to ask a question. But did Paul interpret the bread and wine to somehow become the literal flesh and blood of Jesus, as the Catholics believe? That is not how he interprets it in verse 26, after the blessings, where the wheat bread remains as bread. It's still bread. Rather, Paul's interpretation of Yahshua's actions were provided earlier in chapter 10 of this epistle. And in that chapter, he wrote at verse 16, the cup of eulogy, which we bless. Is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? The wheat bread, which we break, is it not the fellowship of the body of Christ? Because one loaf, one body, we the many are, for we all partake from the one loaf. Paul's perception was that the people sitting around the table were the body and blood of Christ, and that, for that reason, they all being of the same loaf, they jointly partook of the body and blood of Christ. However, the bread and wine were not the actual body and blood. Rather, they represented the fellowship of the body and blood for those who were of that body and blood. That's how Paul interpreted these words, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Greek word koinonia, 
which the churches translate as communion, is fellowship. It means a sharing of things in common. And when Christians share their blessings with one another, that is true communion. Verse 26. Indeed, as often as you may eat this wheat bread and you may drink this cup, you declare the death of the prince until he should come. Paul has already told the Corinthians that they had houses in which to do this, in which to eat and to drink. And here in verse 25, he uses the verb dipneo, which to the Greeks commonly described the taking of the chief meal of the day in conjunction with the description of the Lord's Supper. Whenever Christians share a meal in common with their brethren, they are having communion, and upon doing so, every time they have a dinner, they should do so in the praise and memory of Christ. That is the Lord's Supper, according to Paul of Tarsus. Consequently, and that's how Christ celebrated it, in a private home with his brethren. Consequently, Whoever would eat the wheat bread or drink the cup of the prince unworthily, this is an important verse, will be liable of the body and blood of the prince. But a man must scrutinize himself and thus, after scrutinizing yourself, to see whether or not you're worthy. Nobody else can scrutinize you. A man must scrutinize himself and thus, from of the wheat bread, let him drink. I'm sorry, let him eat. And from of the cup, let him drink. As the apostle Peter had said in chapter 2 of his second epistle, there are natural brute beasts among the body of Christ who speak evil of the things that they understand not. They are spots and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. And they do so, as Peter said, having eyes full of adultery. And they cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. Those women dress like ancient Roman bimbos. And heart, they have exercised with covetous practices, and he calls them cursed children. Jude also talks of these evil beasts and says that they are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. We can look around us today at any white Christian nation and see spots infesting our feast of charity everywhere we turn. Most of these spots are not difficult to see. But even in the time of the apostles, there were tares among the wheat which were more difficult to discern. The promise of Scripture is that one day the tares shall all be 
torn up and thrown into the lake of fire, all of the spots shall eventually be eradicated. Verse 29, for he that is eating and drinking eats and drinks condemnation for himself, not distinguishing the body. Not distinguishing the body of Christ. What the hell could that mean? When you see Sambo sitting at a meal with a bunch of white people, he's not distinguishing the body. He has a problem. This is precisely why the word of Obadiah, why the word of Yahweh says in Obadiah, in Obadiah 15, for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head, for as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. Paul's only quoting or paraphrasing Obadiah and has the same theology as Jude and as Peter expressed in different ways. Verse 30, For this reason there are among you many feeble and sickly and plenty had fallen asleep, a euphemism for death. If then we had made a distinction of ourselves, perhaps we would not be judged. The King James translation of this verse is very dishonest. It's just outright dishonest. There it says, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. However, there are two different verbs here for which the King James has judged both times. The first is diacrino, and the second is simply crino. The Greek word diacrino means something a little more than crino. Diacrino is to judge between two things. Dia means through, or by, or even because, among other things. Dia means between, among other things. Diacrino, according to Liddell and Scott, is to separate one from another, to part to make a throughway between two things, to distinguish, to separate one from another, to part or to distinguish. And Liddell and Scott offer an example from Herodotus, where he had written the words udena diacrinon in reference to persons. And those words are interpreted to mean making no distinction of persons with a negative particle, the negative word udena, meaning not any. 
Here in the appropriate tense, the word is translated in the same way. It means the same thing. It's being used in the same context, only without the negative particle. If then we had made a distinction, if we had made a distinguishing of ourselves, the verb crino is found later in this verse at the end. And again in verse 32, and it is judged. To crino is the common Greek verb which means to judge or to decide, make a decision, condemn. The King James Version. There's a, a noun related to diacrino. That noun is diacresis. And the King James Version has properly translated that noun, diacresis, as discerning. Here in verse 29, where the, where the Christogenian New Testament has, for he that is eating and drinking, eats and drinks condemnation for himself, not distinguishing the body. The King James Version reads very close to that, except that it has not discerning the body, diacresis. So they translated the noun properly. And again, in 1 Corinthians 12.10, where the same noun appears, it is discerning in the King James Version. So the way the King James Version translated the noun, here we would read the verb, if then we had discerned ourselves, perhaps we would not be judged. But the result... The resulting meaning is virtually the same. Where the Christogenia New Testament says, if then we had made a distinction of ourselves, perhaps we would not be judged. Here Paul of Tarsus is clearly stating that these Corinthians, whom only one chapter ago he identifies as the descendants of the ancient Israelites in chapter 10 of this epistle, he is stating that these Corinthians may not be judged if they would only distinguish the body of Christ and make a distinction of themselves. In other words, Christians are commanded to discriminate by properly identifying the body of Christ. They're commanded to discriminate. The sin and judgment of man are directly linked by Paul here to man's failure to make a distinction of himself. Man should have made a distinction of himself in Genesis chapter 3. But instead, he accepted the serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when he himself was of the tree of life. 
Men should have distinguished themselves again, but failed. In Genesis chapter 6, when they first accepted the angels which left their first estate and gave their daughters over to marrying with them. Once more, when the children of Israel took the land of Canaan, they failed to distinguish themselves, and as a result, they had adopted paganism and the ways of the accursed Canaanites. In Paul's day, the Edomites and others of the Canaanite tribes had infiltrated both the Judeans and the Greeks, and once again they were spots in their feasts of charity. In modern times, the Jewish problem is related to that same phenomenon. And now, due to the failure of the people to distinguish themselves, they are once again doomed to judgment because spots in our feasts of charity have absolutely infested our own houses. As we have seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as well as throughout Paul's epistles in many other places, the white nations of Europe, the nations which were pagan in Paul's time but soon became known as Christendom, those nations were indeed Israel according to the flesh. And as Paul attests again in Romans chapter 4, they were indeed the offspring of Abraham and the nations who are destined to inherit the earth. Now here... We see that they, being the body of Christ, are commanded to make a distinction of themselves. And if they did so, they may not face judgment. This is in keeping with the scripture of the Old Testament. We're in Exodus chapter 19. From verse 5, it says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure. Peculiar, meaning not mixed in with everybody else. A peculiar treasure unto me above all people. Separate from all those people. For all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, meaning a nation separated and dedicated to God. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Likewise, the apostle Peter had written to the Israelites of the dispersion in Anatolia. And he told them in 1 Peter chapter 2, But ye are a chosen generation, a word that really means race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that same nation separated and devoted to God, a peculiar people, the same peculiar people that the Old Testament Israelites were that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness, the darkness the Israelites were cast off into, into his marvelous light. The holy nation and peculiar people of Exodus chapter 19 are indeed the same holy nation, which by this time is grown, according to the prophecy, into an entire race of nations. And the same peculiar people of 1 Peter 2.9, 
Christians, real Christians, are the descendants of the children of Israel found in the white race. And they are commanded to put into practice that same discrimination against others that the Israelites of the Old Testament were commanded to practice. And Paul goes on to say that, but being judged by the prince, we are disciplined in order that we would not be condemned with the society. The discipline of Israel and reconciliation of Christ in Christ was a major and recurring theme in the Old Testament, and that is the story of Scripture. Anyone who seeks to introduce non-Israelites, or especially those of the so-called non-Adamic races, into that story are introducing spots into our Feast of Charity and eat and drink condemnation for themselves because God will not be mocked. The Word of Yahweh speaks to Israel in Jeremiah for I am with thee, talking about the discipline of the Lord. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, the discipline Paul speaks of, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Until Yahweh's day of vengeance, so shall all the non-Israelite nations drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. Paul concludes by saying, Consequently, my brethren, gathering into eat, you will wait one another. If anyone hungers, he must eat at home, in order that you would not gather for condemnation. And the other things, when I come, I will set in order. He doesn't get to Corinth until after his second epistle to the Corinthians is written. Among other things in the chapter which follows, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in a very subtle manner, Paul is about to address the Corinthians who ate and drank at the assemblies to the disgrace of those of their less fortunate brethren who had to do without. For now, he tells them directly that they should not eat the Lord's Supper in the assembly but to eat and drink at home. That way, they would not be condemned by showing despite for their less fortunate fellow Christians. Yahweh willing, we shall continue at this very point here next week. Tomorrow night, we shall discuss Christian humility, and we shall also have open lines. Please call in, unless, of course, you are an antichrist or a troll. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening and good night.